I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Okay, um, this is this is quite a strange book, and what's interesting about it is I, I can see already or feel already that probably some of the 52 contributors are hiding or cowering in the audience. So that in a sense, it's not, well, let's, let's make it more circular. It isn't, it isn't this hierarchic thing of us. It just is accidental in a sense that we're up here, as the book itself is accidental. Um, the history of it was very peculiar. I was trying to explain to uh, Will downstairs how it was one of those books in the kind of uh, jobbing career of any any writer where I thought this is this is very nice this could be this could be done quietly um, in the afternoons from serious projects because I was approached by a, a paperback house who do the kind of monster book of monsters the monster book of science fiction the monster book of westerns and they kind of run out of everything except London they said do London you just scissors and paste it, you know, you get everything. As long as you don't spend any money, you can, you can have anything that's out of print and make this kind of 700-page book and, and um, we'll pay you uh, 200 quid. So I thought, yes. And, and then I thought, well, no, I think this really does lend itself to something grander than this. And I, I mentioned it to Hamish Hamilton and they agreed to go with it, at uh, which point I wrote off to, to uh, a number of people and kind of my own family and friends and everybody else, and then let it take its own form. And very, very soon I realized you actually were making, a shaping, making the architecture of a new city, a kind of city of words that um, Time Out this week has, has run a kind of disappearances issue, but that, for me, the flavor there is not what the flavor of this book is. The flavor is very polemic, that in a sense... We're, we're in a city that's being remade, particularly to the east at this moment. The, the Olympic fantasy is on the horizon. Um, the computer-generated version overwhelms the real version, and we're opposed to that, and we're trying to hold on to cafes where people have been thrown out. And all, all of that is true, but it's not really what this book was. This book, much more, is an exercise in extracting memories, persuading people to, to operate in whatever form they would want to go and to see how one voice sits against another voice and where there's need perhaps to eavesdrop on a conversation in a pub or to insert a letter. Because uh, I don't know if you noticed that the, the, the beginning of the book, there's a, 
there's a wonderful short piece, a story about a young woman who's, as it were, stalked by this haunted presence who turns out to be Mervyn Peake. And this is a real portrait of London in wartime and before the war. And, and that came to me exactly as it stands, just as a letter. It wasn't a contribution to the book. And I thought, this is, this is the opening note. And this folds, obviously, and immediately into De Quincey, because I think De Quincey's account of his meeting with Anne of Oxford Street, this young prostitute that he loses, who is his sort of companion and saviour, whether it's a legend, a myth, or a, or a reality that he's recalling, it, it strikes the key note, really, for everything in the book. And so the only sort of anthologized piece that goes in is De Quincey. And then I found, as other elements started to arrive, that, that funnily enough, De Quincey was the name that was name-checked several times. Um, Chris Pettit writes about a, a cupboard of a person who's disappeared, and uh, someone else goes into the room and looks at it, and there's a s collection of paperback books and the only notable book is De Quincey's Opium Eater. So here we are all the time. And um, someone like Driffield, the, bo the book dealer who I decided to, to write about because he'd been gone for seven years. By the time we get further down the book, another character actually finds him and meets him. He's back in London again, and there's an account of what his room is like. And then finally I meet him myself and extract from him a huge manuscript out of which I take a few little bits and pieces that become part of the book. And so the book is personal, it is to do with buildings, it is to do with an architecture of memory. And in this uh, Time Out issue this week, one, one of the pieces, uh, quite a strong piece, is, is a, a transcribed conversation with J.G. Ballard. And Ballard says he, can't he, he couldn't understand it when I put it to him. He cannot understand the notion of a city of disappearances. He cannot s understand why anyone's interested in the centre of London. He thinks the best thing is to raise it to the ground and start again. So on that note, because I know that Will is an admirer and reader, a close reader of Ballard, um, and also um, a notable writer about London, how he would uh, feel about Ballard's polemic about the, the, the notion that the city should be destroyed? Yeah, well, that's quite a good question, isn't it? Um, incidentally, I was just saying that there's a photocopier under here, and I could photocopy my penis while I was talking to you, and I may yet do that, uh, um, just for the hell of it. I don't. I don't think we. I mean, we've discussed this before, Ian, but I don't think Jim Ballard really lives in London. I remember. Um, I mean, he's, clearly he lives in Shepparton, but I mean, I don't think he really even lives in Shepparton qua Shepparton. You know, he has a mythical view of Shepparton itself. You know, it's the kind of Malibu of the Thames Valley for him, and that he he orbits London as a phenomenon rather than as a city. And I think you know, one of the kind of intersections that the kind of the Ballard line cuts through London is is to is for those of us who are obsessed with the quiddity of London he kind of throws all of that to one side. I, I mean, I remember when uh, Crash was being filmed by David Cronenberg, and I know you've written a monograph on this that, you know, I sort of wrote to Ballard in some dudgeon and said, you know, it's terrible, Cronenberg's going to set Crash in uh, Toronto, whereas for me it's the quintessential kind of post-war English avant-garde novel, and it's key that it takes place in London, you know, it's key that, that Vaughan's car crashes off the Chiswick flyover, you know, that's how it, it's got to happen there. Uh, 
and he wrote back very blithely saying, oh, no, 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 you completely misunderstand this. It's not, it'll be fantastic in Toronto. This is a kind of emblematic. Toronto's completely vapid city. It really doesn't matter at all. You know, the important thing is that it is what it says about cities and cars and urban scapes. And, uh, and I think that is true for him. I mean, also, without you know, wanting to take a, a pop or anything, I think that... That, that Jim Ballard has this particular kind of antipathy to the notion of the metropolitan bourgeoisie that he kind of, he'd probably like to raise the interior of the LRB bookshop first, you know, as a sort of, as a, as a sort of Hermann Goering de nos jours. I think he'd kind of start here and then sort of move outwards. And I mean, but my. Per- I think this is yeah. part. He, he doesn't grasp, because he doesn't ever visit it, he doesn't know the kind of weird accidents of the city. I've been looking really closely at Hackney <laughs> for 40 years, but of late, you know, there, there are extraordinary changes going on there. And I, I discovered that, it, that Orson Welles, for example, had made this extraordinary film outside the town hall in Hackney when he was in, in the Hackney Empire in the 1950s. He's, he's uh, rehearsing Moby Dick, and he comes outside the theatre and sees these six old ladies who are in front of an almshouse that's about to be raised to the ground to build this new civic monster of the Hackney Town Hall. And he interviews them all, who all turn out to be dyed-in-the-wool Tories, completely supporting the people who are about to evict them. It's a classic Hackney cameo. And um, Jean-Luc Godard, who I I can remember trying to find in a certain point in the 1960s, all the time he was actually in Hackney, round the corner from me, making a film by Ridley Road Market. Very weird thing. So I was telling this story to the guy in the video shop in Broadway Market, which is one of the hackney appearances, which has turned into a kind of Portobello Road. And the guy said, oh, yeah, Cronenberg has just been in five minutes before, and he's decided that his next film is going to be about hackney. <laughs> because he's, someone has written a script about the Russian mafia taking over hackney, which is all true, of course, but, you know... I like that kind of mirror image that, that in Ballard's crash goes to Toronto and, and in return we get Cronenberg back and the following project is going to be Martin Amis's London Fields which mm. is not Hackney's London Fields which was a novel by a guy called John Milne but well, the, these are curious points and I think um, I'd, I'd like because Jonathan I think is actually going to leave London which is a fairly appalling crime um, no, it's not. It's not an appalling crime. I'm t- tired of London, tired of life. That London was a London which is the size of um, Bristol. Um, it wasn't um, London which stretches from Shepparton to Dagenham and from Croydon to um, Lord Levy's Totteridge. Um, it, it, it was a, a city which I think is manageable. We were just talking, actually, about the fact that um, the um, urbanist uh, Paul Virilio has, um, to the consternation of all his former pupils and all his former collaborators, um, has left Paris and gone to live in La Rochelle, a uh, population 110,000, uh, which is probably about the right size for um, a, a city. Um, of course, the trouble, I suppose, that with living in uh, a, a small city or a big town is that one doesn't get these um, endless layers which are constantly seeping into each other, um, like sort of 
you know, one disease on top of another. Cyril Connolly had a name for someone who was infected with three kinds of venereal disease, and I forget it, but it was a, a good word. Um, and one, you, you, don't, you don't get that layering in, in those places, but um, you, you, you don't in Shepparton either, and, and you can um, create these cities um, where wherever you want. I mean, you, you know, you, you can live idyllically in somewhere like Shropshire and, and create um, horrible dystopias of the future. Ballard's prospectus of the future, I think, is actually, has actually um, largely come true in my London lifetime, which is since I was a student, so some more or less 40 years. Um, London has been raised... Um, and the shelf life of buildings becomes shorter and shorter. Mm. Um, what one's seeing now that um, POMO stuff of the late 70s, early 80s is getting knocked down to be replaced by neo or synthetic modernism mm. imitating the um, heroic modernism. I don't know why, where, where, where that adjective got attached to modernism, but it did. Um, one's seeing stuff of, 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 of that period knocked down, and um, the city has been renewed. I mean, certain uh, things will not presumably now get knocked down uh, because they're sacred. I mean, St. Pancras, it could easily have been knocked down 30 or 40 years ago. Um, anything from the 60s can now get knocked down. So there, there is this en endless renewal, and it's not a question of raising it as if there has been a bomb, but there is a, a, an absolutely constant change. And um, I went back, because the piece uh, that I contributed to this book um, uh, is entirely set in Holland Park, and um, I went back to have it's going to be published in a magazine someone's taking a photograph of me went back to the place it is absolutely unrecognisable there is nothing and the smells have changed as much as anything there, there were particular smells you got in particular places um, there was at one time uh, in what is now um, called Clarendon Cross which is where the first of the race riots was in 1958 um, uh, the, 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 there was a plague of uh, particularly tasty rats and I remember walking home through a pea super one night and seeing this lovely, lovely little pussy well, large, big pussy coming along the thing I thought, ah, nice thing, he's going out looking for kitty cat when it got a few yards of me I saw it was a rat and they, they, had, they, they, they were infesting the drains and were, were, were fed um, uh, some rat poison. I don't know what it was called. Incidentally, there is in Mexico City a kind of rat poison called the Last Supper. Um, and they, they were fed a rat poison which made them crave air before they came out. So the, these super rats who... who um, I mean, big strapping fellows, uh, rather like um, slightly underdeveloped coipus, um, were out, out there in the street... Um, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't put this in, but the, 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 you, can, you can't. But it's the smells which, which, which have changed as much as anything, um, and the, the smells of then have been raised, just as buildings have been raised, the cars have been raised, the people have been raised. I mean, and yeah. um, 
uh, one doesn't, one shouldn't take Ballard too literally. I mean, but he, he's 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 speaking um, the truth about London, which is not necessarily the truth about any city. Um, this great this number of European cities do not renew themselves with with the vigour of 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 London. It might also be. One might also say that it's nothing to do with vigour, it's to do with the fact that we're, we're, we're more um, pervious to fashion than other cities. But whatever it is, it does ha the mutation happens here with great, greater alacrity than it does elsewhere in Europe. That, not, not in China, though. That sounds to me like a, a, a very eloquent but protracted uh, apology for the fact that you're leaving, Jonathan. <laughs> 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 or justification, something no, I'm kindly say. I mean, to pick up on what you were saying on the size of the city, I mean, Cyril Connolly, why Connolly should come up is beyond me, also said no city should be so large that someone can't walk out of it in the morning. And clearly London hasn't been of a size where you could walk out of it in the morning uh -huh. for some time. Well, it can, if not from the centre, but the, the city that you arrived at, Jonathan, in the very early 1960s, still stretched from Lord Levy's totteridge to Croydon and from Dagenham. To, so, you, you know, it may have had some accretions in the post-war period, some satellite towns and some linear development stuff on the side, but you're still leaving a city that was the same size as when you arrived. And actually, the population is only now increasing again towards a projected nine million. And I, you know, to answer your question originally, Ian, and what I find exciting about your book and still find exciting about the city is that dark, anarchic gravity mm -hmm. that it has that sucks in everything, that sucks in all narratives. But, but um, we're in such a weird period now that the things that disappear reappear. I mean, every obviously every appearance is a disappearance in disguise. But you have... A kind of mythology builds up around Christopher Wren's Temple Bar. Here it is, sitting as an entrance to the city. Its its traffic causes it to be demolished. It's knocked down. All it's cleared away to the edge of the city, to the edge of the M25, to Waltham Abbey, Theobald's Park, where a brewer who has just married a barmaid from Tottenham Court Road, who decides she would like a folly in her garden, erects this. Christopher Wren thing in the garden in a, in a wood at the edge of nowhere where it's wonderful because it is a complete folly and you, you mm. come across it by disguise, there it is, wonderful. It could be a kind of gate of the M25. The nicest. And then yeah. we're not allowed to have that because suddenly someone decides in sort of the influence of Prince Charles that maybe Paternoster Square would be rather nice if this piece of kitsch came back. So Wren's thing comes back to a very short distance and where it started in the first place at the cost of three, four million quid and is kind of re-erected with a thing that stands for the monument and a couple of sheep by Elizabeth Frink and you end up with this sort of kitschy version of a city created in the middle of the city and I find that even more alarming when things start coming back from the grave, not allowed their kind of first disappearance, they're not allowed the honour of that, and I think I was trying to get at that in the book, that some things sort of float to the surface like scum and other things are almost on the point of erasure But nothing is allowed to detrite I mean, you, you London today never looks ruinous it always looks as, as shiny Oh, it and does it in some parts 
but very yeah, well, uh, Waterton not Road, I would recommend. You know, this is yeah. <laughs> yeah, the edge. Of, I mean, I think you could define what looks ruined as being on the edge of what is about to become grand. So the kind of Olympic Park has this. Oh, that bit. There's the whole whole of the leave. Yes, it's, the whole, it's the magnificent. Whole of this road and is, it's a very kind of history of England. It's yeah. a tracking shot from a lost film that has the. The Travellers' Camp here, a kind of very strange fundamentalist rip-off voodoo sect here, kind of bush meat here. The, the allotments we're all trying to save, manor garden allotments, this wonderful thing on the toxic side. And um, at the end, uh, uh, kind of notices on, on the fences of this most derelict and Balkan of all zones in London, we buy gold. <laughs> <laughs> Who from? You know, the teeth? I mean, where are you going to get to? Temple, Temple Bar reappeared on a very fine brand of cigarettes in Australia in the 1980s called Temple Bar Cigarettes, which is a picture of the Temple Bar on it, yellow packet, very, very fine, very strong cigarette, which has, of course, now disappeared. Um, As long with the people who smoked them. But I think, <laughs> except for me. <laughs> but every cigarette disappears. It's the fate of a cigarette. <laughs> well... Indeed, but uh, isn't London in its essence an, an anarchic city? And that's why it's endlessly protean. I mean, you look at the other major European cities and at one time or another somebody has come along and planned the centre in some egregious fashion and tried as a manifestation of state power to canalise the impulses of the city. Temple Bar is highly significant, isn't it? Because mm. it, it represents, in a sense, the central point between Westminster and the city in its original location. It was the point of admittance for the sovereign to the city of London, so it's the vital. And I would still place the centre of London where Temple Bar used to stand. So the fact of its transliteration... You were born quite close to them. I was born in the old Charing Cross Hospital, which is... Gone not, itself? Well, it's kind of gone because it's moved to the Fulham Palace Road, which makes it sound ridiculous, but very very London, in a way, to have the Charing Cross Hospital on Fulham Palace Road. But what it is now is the police station. I mean, it is there, in the, and except the very original building is tucked under Terry Farrell's Charing Cross Station development. I mean, it's coming back to what Jonathan was saying, and, and what, you know, the kind of way in which postmodernism in London architecturally is merely an attempt to put up something that isn't the brutalism of the 1960s of and course, 70s. Yeah. Now it's being knocked down. It doesn't have it. In a sense, London postmodernism is the most pure postmodernism there is. It is purely an embellishment on getting rid of what was there from modernism. It doesn't have any jokes or asides of its own. It's traduced by its aim in the portfolio of property developers. But jo joke, joke, jokes in architecture are a bad idea, I mean, because you're hearing the same joke told over and over and over again. Yeah, but I'm um, saying... And so, so that's why the, this postmodernism is, is actually... Farrell's thing is magnificent. I think that, that um, it's great. I mean, it's, it says sod you in the um, traditional way of Owen Luda. Okay, listen, listen. I think there's a kind of... There's getting to be a kind of dangerous level of sort of late-night television about this now. So we're getting a bit too articulate. So I, I think <laughs> what I would like to do is just actually to give a flavour of what the actual book is, is that if we all are three in, in turn and read some short extract, so you get a kind of sense of the collisions of material in, in a more arbitrary way. And I'll, I'll uh, kick off with a, a short pieces because um, and since we're in a, in a bookshop, that's where I'd like to go. 
Um, and I, and the, the form of the book is such that you, you don't really know who has written these pieces until you come to the end of them. I didn't want kind of the big names at the top of the page. So you, you drift through. And, and I'm just going to go actually into the business of books. This is called Weather in the Streets. The woman who looked like my wife walked past the shop again. She stopped at the window. I was sure it was her. And then it was not when I looked up and she saw me watching. If she was surprised to see me, she gave no sign. She went on looking in the window and then she came in. The bell rang. She closed the door. I nodded. She said nothing. Two strangers, a brief acknowledgement. She wandered round, went down to the basement and I watched her on the monitor. On the black and white screen, she looked more like her old self. She bought a first edition of The Weather in the Streets. I wrapped it carefully. Again, I couldn't be certain. She was thinner. I looked in her eye as she handed over the book, and she held my gaze, hers betraying no sign of recognition. Perhaps she was ashamed to find me reduced to working in a bookshop. Me sitting, her standing, the exchange of money. I couldn't think of a question that didn't sound ridiculous. I wondered if she'd set out to ignore me, to humiliate me. Her unspoken message was, whether I was your wife or not, I'm a stranger now. That's Chris Pettit. That's from a book called Robinson. And it's just slivered in there next to a, a completely random thing that arrived, uh, sent to me by Amanda Sebastian as a, a book uh, by a person called Malcolm Letts and uh, this is a kind of completely lost book, a very slim volume but it had in it a wonderful account of a cellar in Gray's Inn Road and I'll, I'll just finish with a little extract of that It was now my lot to go through the cellar and clear out the bedroom To a book lover the experience was both horrifying and exciting The conditions under which the books were housed were appalling The cellar was damp and very cold there was a small gas stove and no light except for a couple of gas burners, a small table and one chair, and every inch of the walls was covered with shelving on which the books were arranged two and sometimes three deep according to some obscure method known only to the worthy bricklayer. Books were piled high on the floor and stored away in the most inaccessible corners. The cellar had two of the essentials of a good library and two only. It had books and quiet. I laboured there on Saturday afternoons for a whole winter, dusting, polishing, listing, sorting, removing some of the more precious books and burning others. As for peace, I might have been buried in a tomb instead of working just below a busy London street. So profound was the quiet that a brother who helped me out on a few afternoons, quoting, I think, from the anatomy of melancholy, claimed to have heard a bookworm calling to its mate. I have never seen so many books in my life. The books, oddly enough, had suffered on the whole little internal damage, though the bindings were faded. The bricklayer who did this may have been an indifferent librarian, but he packed books as he laid bricks, and it only needed cement to make them into a solid block. No damp could penetrate such a mass, and over everything was a thick coating of dust, which formed, I suppose, a kind of natural protection. Oh, I thought I'd read a bit um, of a piece by my friend uh, Nick Papadimitro, who's here this evening and is a contributor to the book and has written something 
that for me is very emblematic of this endlessly protean and reconstituting faculty that London has. And, and Nick, like me, like Ian, uh, like Jonathan to some extent, is also preoccupied by kind of interzones, by the kind of the point where the city is constantly mashing up against something else. So I'll just read a section of this piece by Nick on the, the Bedfont Court estate, which I think is quite self-explanatory. I first stumbled across the Bedfont Court estate during an attempt to visit Perry Oaks, a sludge disposal works set up by the county council in the 1930s as part of the West Middlesex main drainage scheme. Liquidized sewage was pumped down the Bath Road from Mogden near Isleworth and dried out at Perry Oak for use on the rich farmlands of the region. During the 1980s, concerns about heavy metal contamination by industry put paid to the recycling of waste and ultimately to Perry Oaks. The sewage works featured in that record of urban wildlife, Richard Maybe's the unofficial countryside, 1973, though he doesn't name the site in keeping with his precursor Richard Jeffrey's policy of being unspecific about the locale of his subjects. It is clearly Perry Oaks he is discussing. Maybe drew attention to the rare waders using the works as a halt on their migratory flights. Being interested in birds and sewage farms, I decided to check the place out. I was shocked to find that where Perry Oaks should have been, according to my OS map, there was now a massive building project. Instead of austere 1930s blockhouses and sediment lagoons, I saw what looked like an aluminium frame for a vast greenhouse. Cranes sliced through the stark horizontal of the airport. Eerie half-glass, half-tent structures shimmered across the landscape. Gigantic ramparts curved out of the construction site. Gravel mounds towered over the trees. Checking my map, I found that this area of tracks and buildings was described as the Bedfont Court Estate. I hadn't realised that work on BAA's new flagship fifth passenger terminal was so advanced, or that Perry Oaks had been earmarked as its location. A glance at the security fence around the main site confirmed that access was impossible. Crossing the Western Perimeter Road, I turned up Spout Lane North, where kennels have been established to board pets while their owners are out of the country. Spout Lane is obviously old. Ditches run down one side. Old oaks wrapped in ivy and dense patches of bramble interspersed with wild rose line the lane. You could be entering a traditional farming community circa 1914. I found out later that the spout in question was an ancient fish pond formed by the confluence of several streams and field ditches. In its place is a reservoir holding the drainage from the airport runways. To the right, a little track ran towards some scattered pines. The baying of dogs from the boarding kennels could be heard through dense hedges. On the left, 
I saw the first of the small holdings, small white houses, their roofs steeply pitched, desolate scraps of land broken by ramshackle sheds and greenhouses, signs warned of trespass and surveillance. Behind the houses, across the land dense with thistles and docks, a flimsy wire fence marked the lower slopes of the gravel mounds. It was hard to shake off the feeling that something disastrous had happened here. It was as if a major contamination of the, of the site had occurred, an unreported Chernobyl emptying the area of its inhabitants. Folk memories had been replaced by the blur seen in a moment's glance from cars speeding to the new terminal. Yet the particular resonance didn't arise from relics left behind from previous users, the broken fences lost in weeds, a burned-out caravan parked in a yard, the dying damson bushes. There was a knotty multifariousness, a strata of cultural associations evident in the broader brushstrokes of the place. The farmhouses, for instance, seemed to come straight out of the Ukraine in the middle of the last century. There was something of the Kolkhoz, of enforced participation about these buildings, all identical, each plopped firmly within its allotted area of land. The concrete track with telegraph poles had the makeshift feel of militant revolutionary policy farming. We must feed the cities. The dumpy little tractors standing by disintegrating shacks might have been loaned out by the authorities for communal use. An impression I later found was correct. My half-provincial, half-metropolitan friends were different when in London, sharper, more assured, familiar with arcane cafes, richer. They knew the form. Their parents' friends designed film sets and owned important bistros. The long nocturnal walks to their flats and to the clubs which, which daunted me became more attractive than the destinations. Thus they became increasingly circuitous. I didn't want to arrive. Frequently I had no chance of arriving because I was lost in the smog and reliant on the tube map which I had yet to realise was diagrammatic. It would be years before I read Jane Thompson's The City of Dreadful Night Yet here was that very labyrinth where terror lurked in milky pools of light cast through grubby curtains, in alley shadows, in jagged, craterous bomb sites where flaccid budlier sprouted, in walls of friable brick and seeping mortar, in the teeming slums of Little Napoli, copyright Colin McInnes, where the ten-year-old urchins, copyright Roger Main, were more wised up than I was. I don't know how I learnt that Vince was called Vince. He used to sit up in his hoodless, tireless pram, eye me and shout, CAN'T! Westmore Grove was clamorous. The broad avenues of Maida Vale were always deserted. Not everyone had a phone. A couple of times I dropped by a school friend's flat in Observatory Gardens near the Victorian Water Tower on Camden Hill. He wasn't there. At a party on 20th of November 1964, I learnt that he had been killed the previous Friday, the 13th, when a furniture van was blown over on top of his father's car on the hog's back. Patrick was my first friend to die. It was years before I went back to that square of eau de boeuf windows and heftily French rustication. 
I guess that superstitious avoidance means that I was marking out my own London, a city of permanent absences and architectonic solaces. It was a city, too, that was mediated by Seal House. The interior was like an interior by Sickert or Tonks. I know this because I spent hours among the paintings and reproductions. It did not occur to me that the house was oddly anachronistic, that it was unmarked by the fashions of post-war Britain, that the whites' taste belonged to an era before they were born. Painting was generically Francophile, generically post-impressionist, generically splodgy. It was some years before I had the confidence to admit to myself that I prefer the cold northern precision of Fouquet and Shad to enthusiastic impasto. In the world of Seal House, artists were arty. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Paint stained, carelessly dressed in bright colours. Augustus's widow, the sainted Dodo, was still a make believe gypsy of 60 years before. Her son, Romilly, a priestly man, would sit for hours in quietest contemplation. There was no end to the Johns. Was the thick set man Edwin? There were Johns with Augustus's profile, beanpole Johns, sober Johns. They constituted more than a diffuse family. They made up a tribe with its own law and traditions. Vivian's elder sister, Poppet, much less cowed by her parents than Vivian, drank and smoked and, and laughed with appealing abandon. One day there arrived the most beautiful young woman I had ever seen, Poppet's stepdaughter, the starlet Talita Pole. I gaped, unable to dissemble my amazement. She was, however, entirely atypical of the exotically shabby galère which regularly assembled at the house and moved down the road to the Prince of Wales. Uh, William Morris, founder of the Free University of London, a shed beyond the North Circular and the first of sev several dodgly utopian ventures to bear that name, was a grown-up beatnik. He had filthy clothes, a lopsided beard, barley sugar fingers from cigarettes, a worse scooter than Yuri's, and a ginger girlfriend whose myopia forced her to wear glass bricks on her wan face. Morris also had a revolver which, which he threatened a friend of mine who wouldn't sleep with him. Happily, the great educator passed out and she ran away happily with a Spanish, Spanish basketball professional player. Okay, good. Let's Let's kind of round things off by perhaps asking, I'll start with Will, if we go with this kind of conceit of the city of disappearances, is there anything that you would particularly feel should be saved from disappearance? Anything in the way of person, place, object? No, I mean, I, I accept the, the, the uh, kind of ineluctable munch of London, the, the mastication of everything and its, and its giant jaws. I really accept it. I mean, one of the things we've both of us have been preoccupied by is this Olympics farce, which, of course, in a 
in a different regime would be terrifying, but in fact, of course, isn't. London will, will chew it up effortlessly and spit out 2012 like a lot of old Kentucky fried chicken bones on a pavement outside a chicken shop on the Uxbridge Road. There's no need to worry about that. Um, and also, in reading Jonathan's piece, I was struck, and I was talking to Nick about it this evening by... Jonathan has a lovely image for, for London fogs, for pea supers, and says how in the Clean Air Act had started to work by the time you got to London in the early 60s. So the pea supers were, your, your focal distance was increased from three to five feet. But, you know, even as a child growing up in, in uh, sort of Hampstead Garden suburb East Finchley, notable for Prospect Ring, a, a block of flats so dull that it appears at the beginning of Feiden's collection of boring postcards. Um, <laughs> I remember those fogs, and you described them as being like sort of, you know, stone you can walk through, those London fogs. It was interesting that nobody in the book, we was, Nick and I were talking about this, seized on that and wrote about the disappearance of that that does itself disappear yeah. in that way. That those, and I still remember those. I remember my father making his way back from East Finchley Tube Station by privet, by a sort of privet string mm. that he would lead down Abbott's Gardens along. Brim Hill, but no, basically to answer your question in sum, though I am upset about the loss of the continuous lift in the student union building in LSE on Horton Street, which was a marvellous thing. You could jump onto this lift and it would go all the way up and over the top in a continuous band. That's gone, done for by health and safety, but basically I am sanguine. London will win. It may spit <coughs> meads out, but it'll still be here. Well, funny. I mean, this fog, fog <laughs> thing, you say it's not in the book, but it, w it was, bizarrely, it was in the last book I did. It's a just come out as a paperback called Edge of the Horizon, oh, it's in which is about this walk that the poet John Clare made from Epping Forest back home. And in the, in the course of this, I kind of mentioned this episode, and my wife's father, who was a rather eccentric character, was sitting in the um, hotel by the side of... King's Cross, and they were about to set off for a journey which reprised Clare's, but up the Great North Road or the A1. And it was getting foggy outside, so he continued drinking his whiskies for several extra hours and sending for more cheese sandwiches until he'd sort of steadied up enough to get into the car. And off they set, and, and the fog was, was exactly as described by Jonathan. And uh, they came around a roundabout somewhere as you move out and, and kind of realized things were flashing at them. And they were coming up the wrong side of the motorway. <laughs> and I thought this was a kind of a very nice image. So, <laughs> and they survived, I mean, having survived to tell it, the it, tale. It wasn't an image. I mean, it was reality for them. Well, <laughs> for them it was. Is there anything in the kind of topography of disappearance that, that you would reverse? Oh, God, where do you start? Um, I, think, I think what has disappeared in London is um, the ability to live on nothing. I mean, people without any money now are indigent. And one could get by in London. And that, that is a a great shame for a city if it can only be a, 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 a city which, which is propelled by, by money. And um, 
it ha- London has done something else, which is, is not so much it's, it's not so much a disappearance as a kind of disappearing act that has been performed in it started with Wilson's first administration. That's say that the centralisation of Britain, which has had the effect of London seceding from the rest of Britain. London doesn't connect. The city seceding from the rest of London. The yes, city, yes, city. yes. But there are these endless secessions. But London's secession from uh, the regions, the provinces, whatever one likes to call them, um, has had a very, very peculiar effect on the rest of Britain. And it, it, it's not, it's not a, a beneficial effect. It makes the rest of Britain kind of look over its shoulder at London the whole time in a way that Milan does not look over its shoulder at Rome, the way that Lyon does not look over its shoulder yeah. at Paris. And um, it, 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 it's made for a kind of two-tier country, um, wh- which I think is... It's, it's 1986. What happens is the, the markets are deregulated, the GLC is closed down, and the M25 is open. <laughs> yeah. And from that stems everything. And over 85% of inward investment to this country is made within the M25 which is um, ghastly and it needs to be corrected Okay, so can can we um, kind of throw throw it open to see if there's anyone wants to ask anything or or state anything I've walked along the streets of London in a fog and been totally lost and located myself along the middle of the street by listening to the radios in the houses each side. That is the sort of fog in which you cannot see your feet. What was on the radio? (laughs) Do you remember the programmes that were on the radio? Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't hear them clearly enough for that. The part of London where I was born is Stepney. I was born in the, in the 1940s in Stepney when my family and I lived in a, what was a very nice Victorian house on three floors. I believe it was a sea captain's house in Victorian times. And very similar houses existed in Wellwalk, Hampstead. But our house was destroyed by Stepney Borough Council as being unfit for human habitation and replaced by acres and acres of hideous council blocks, which are still there to this day. And that is something that I really, really regret for London. form of revenge would be for Camden Council to destroy Well Walk, to knock on the house of a prominent poet or for example, and say, this house is, is unfit for habitation by anybody but the oak bourgeoisie, and so it must be destroyed. We'll look into that. <laughs> but, but isn't Camden High Street and Kentish Town Road still a treasure? Up to a point. I mean, when I was a child, we lived next door to Lewis and Mary Wine, who had a wholesale dry goods business on Kentish Town High Road, just opposite where the North London Polytechnic used to be at the end of Bartholomew Road, and it was called LUMAR, an acronym of their two names. Gone, of course. 
And, of course, that bit of North London poly is gone. The poly is gone, and it's a pizza express. But interestingly... It looks exactly the same. And the, the uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the old Victorian swimming pool that's up Grafton Road from there as well. I'm not sure whether that's gone or not. Just been saved. It hasn't gone, you see. It's yeah. like it's still resurrected in your memory, your account of it, your narrative. This is like the Fahrenheit 451. There are these sort of strange freaks wandering about the city reciting the histories of lost buildings. Mm. And so while that continues, this process, like the book, these things are a kind of virtual architecture of our own. It's our own version of what you do instead of the grand project. Mm. Mm. Because you can't hang on. You can't. I mean, the inevitable historical processes remorselessly grind through. And the only trick is to remember to hold on, to pay your respects, to, to form a living account of things that were there and to yeah. balance them together. But the remorseless oh. historical process changes, I mean, because there's yes, so, yeah. so, that so, such a weight behind keeping things now that thing, things which you'd expect to have gone are still there. They but sometimes they don't know why they've, they've kept them, but no, they, there's you, no purpose so, to the keeping. But often, often unseen, because one of the huge changes in, in London is the fact that man's... Mankind's primacy um, exhibited in the way of making avenues, making vistas, making views um, from the 18th century onwards. Um, you know, the, the kind of capability brand thing where you get a, a kind of clump of trees, then you get a gap with, through which you could see a folly. Um, endless, deliberately created views and views which were fortuities um, have disappeared because no one is now allowed to chop down a tree. Hmm. And um, we, uh, trees have grown everywhere and no one pollards in this country. And so you lose en endless, endless, endless views. I mean... Um, Pevsner wrote all, did all his tours in winters when there were no leaves around. But even were he alive today and trying to look through, through the bare boughs, he would not be able to see because there, there are so, so many of them. And, th and this, is, this is a, you know, it's a I mean, the, the grand of saving. The saving. grand view of London, really, that was there in the 1970s, was on, from the top of Greenwich Hill front of General Wolfe's statue, you could see right between the two domes of the Queen's house, absolutely bang in the middle was Hawksmoor's St Anne's Limehouse. And these kind of prospects, which gave you a kind of grand and remorseless sense of the city, were completely destroyed when, when Docklands is thrown up to, to fill in this sort of blank piece of, of land. And, and that kind of possibility now can, cannot be done, and the only way to do it is to have somebody wander the streets and kind of invent their own weird versions yes. which would link well, up all kinds of rubbish anyway. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, that possibility is still there, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I'm much less m more sanguine than either of you. I mean, I think you're, it, it just creates a bigger tent the higher the building. Uh, you know, there, there is always the eye seeks the parallax in the city and within yeah, establishing perhaps. one parallax around you know, uh, the HSBC building or whatever it is, you then establish but, other but parallaxes as well. We, we um, did this walk 
together mm-hmm. down okay. something called the, the Northern Sewage Outfall. And the point of this is it's like the Ridgeway because, it's, it, because of the sewage that's pouring through underneath to go out into the Thames at Barking. You're on a ra- very raised walkway, and this gives you the kind of privilege of looking over the landscape as an entirety and seeing all these markers in the kind of Hawksmoorian fashion. And what you're walking at, Tom, is, is the kind of way of flushing out the city. Mm. So when you're down in the ditch, which is what we're going to be now, on the, every canal, every river system is, is having these curtained buildings along closing you off. You're going to be going down mm. chasms. Don't you think that's disadvantageous? <laughs> Well, I, 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 I'm not sure. I mean, well, you're I, I tall think enough, probably. To I'm tall enough to look over most developments just by <laughs> walking up close to them, obviously. Uh, but I'm even sanguine about what Jonathan was saying about the city. I mean, the city does, you know, cities one as the financial centre of, of Europe, and you know, indirectly employs something like 75 percent of London's what? whole population doing service industry. I mean. And yes, the whole role of London as a manufacturer and a port has been lost, but you know, what goes around comes around. I mean, the, the Hanseatic League was granted the lands down to the Thames. You know, the reason London grew exponentially to begin with was because it was an entrepot of inward investment to Britain. It didn't grow because they made cutlery in, in, uh, in Farringdon. It didn't grow even really because it was a port qua port, because of its thinginess. It grew as a financial centre. So I think, you know, that, that you're being a little bit, both of you are in danger of being a little bit rose-tinted about the past, but you can be forgiven that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Cameron. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose I'd, I'd like to ask a question which is on, on those lines, and one of the things that London seems to be very good at is this thing about what goes around comes around and the ability to maybe fix itself up. I mean... We're, we're perhaps starting to see the reappropriation of, of violences of the past, like the kind of riverside and the, the uh, things like um, the embankment, which is again a, a kind of drainage project, uh, which is gradually, perhaps, I mean, this is the moment where in the next 20 or 30 years that will be reappropriated to the, the damage that that did to the strand at that time. But I, I wonder, it, with the kind of danger of nostalgia, um, which, which uh, necessarily, I suppose, this book stalks the edge of what the prospective view of London is and the prospective possibility of, of disappearances may be. Well, one prospective view of London and indeed of Britain's other cities is that, it, that it's going to conform more to the European model than it is to the American model. It's only the USA and Britain that use the term inner city to denote crime, squalor, deprivation, and so on. Um, What's happening in London and also in somewhere like Manchester, which is probably the biggest building site in Britain, um, is that the inner city is being embourgeois or gentrified, but it's not gentrification through doing up old buildings, it's the gentrification of new build. And um, the people who live there are being pushed out to the burbs. And so in 
two or three decades, um, the, there'll be no riots save outside the ring road, as in Paris. The riots don't happen in the numbered arrondissement. They happen out in Sergi Pontoise and Main La Vallée and so on. And this, and this is what is going to happen in Britain, uh, where you're not getting um, mixed use any longer in the, in the centre of cities. You're, you're getting um, uh, scab apartments. One, one of the last and sort of meatiest riots in London was, was when they opened an Ikea in Edmonton, I think. It kind of, it, the whole city came to a grinding halt because people couldn't cope with the excitement. <laughs> what a good noble cause. Um, it was, it was this wonderful thing. You know, I mean, Ikea is enough to drive anybody crazy anyway, but letting loose people into this in the middle of the night um, blocked the whole of the North Circular Road. Uh, mattresses were being torched. It was, it was like kind of Brixton. But it's out there now. This is, this is, I think, possibly connecting up with what you're saying. It wasn't in the centre. Yeah. It was out in this new kind of wilderness. It was a Ballard moment, a very big Ballard moment, uh, as well as the, the sort of tanks that were sent to roll into Blue Water shopping centres as one of these kind of cosmetically arranged scares that keep us on our toes. They, they, they did Heathrow and they did Blue Water. They did Blue... Yeah, they sent tanks in because there'd been a kind you of... Swear, you swear to this? Yes, yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's well, well attested. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't worry about that because the Thames Barrier is going to fail, central London is going to be flooded... And far from your vision coming true, there will be a weird inversion of the donut where enormous flood protection will be built around the floodplain and the interior of the inner city will become a kind of liquid, toxic stew yeah. again. The rookeries will re-emerge yes. and there will be an introjection of the birds <laughs> into the immediate outer the area of inner London. And then, of course, it will all disappear between the waves, like as in... Uh, as in Jeffrey's after London, and there'll merely yeah. be this sort of toxic sludge percolating well, up. You, you can define point. it by wherever the, the kind of new grand project is. The bit around it has all of these elements. I mean, what's happened in the Lower Lee Valley is that the sewage has started to really pour in. The Thames Barrier can't cope. Um, in Three Mills, which is a big TV studio, the, the Tesco's car park was flooded with sewage. The TV studio itself was completely flooded. All the high electric cables were there. The television program makers who had been making Big Brother were trapped in the upper floors, looking out over this kind of darkened city. The, the rest of the Olympic zone is largely defined by places where they hold large raids for terrorists, you know, Forest Gate, Leytonstone. You, you can actually see the, the creation of this kind of wonderful satellite happening in front of our very eyes. So I think all those old descriptions don't play. I mean, the middle of Hackney, where I am now, is this estate that looks like it should be in St. Albans. So actually the suburbs have invaded the inner city, and they've got millions of CCTV cameras and helicopters overhead to give it this kind of sense of protection. And at the same time, there was a, a murder on the doorstep about... Uh, a couple of weeks ago for the very reasons that because of the CCTV cameras the kids were no longer on the street but they kicked on the doors and went into the stairwell of the houses a murder occurs I mean the, the whole thing is all the old descriptions are just being shredded and scrambled and I don't think we'll be able to say this is suburb or not anymore it won't happen but I think this gentleman and you can correct me if I'm wrong viewed Basil Getz attempt to make the shit disappear 
from central London as the point where it all went wrong. I think I hope I'm following you right here, that there was a fundamental reversal of the laws of nature at that point and that pumping the shit out down that sewer outfall was the big mistake. You talked about the embankment and reclaiming the bit. I presume you mean that the embankment should be physically broken up with pneumatic jackhammers and there should be a muddy tidal foreshore yeah. of rack again and everything will be okay. Is that what you're saying? Cities are often kind of constructed through good, good ideas, I suppose, or particularly on that kind of Victorian improvement model that uh, things can only get better. But often in getting better, there are destructions. And uh, perhaps we're in one of those kind of moments now that the kind of betterment brings with it an unforeseen set of violences that, uh, that nevertheless, the city sort of uh, uh, claws back. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm very much of your opinion that, that, that London can cope with that kind of, that degree of violence that the uh, Olympics proposes, perhaps. But if one of the first responses is to, is to turn it into this kind of, whatever it is, t turn it into a heritage thing and start charging money. Because I, I, I was going along on your side of the river on the south bank where the, the sewage comes in on the, on the other side, opposite Barking. And, and all the traffic along the riverbank was brought to a dead standstill by a, a rather embarrassed policeman where none of us could move. And he wouldn't confess what it was. And after we'd been there half an hour, everyone was getting pretty restless. And, and a cavalcade with the, the royal standards appeared. And it was, it was Prince Charles again coming to visit this sewage centre, which was now being opened as a heritage attraction. And, and as a result of that, all kind of human traffic had to stop for an hour while he met all the dignitaries and saw all the machines. And that, that is what we do. That's our kind of response to everything, is to either aspire to the nature of a funfair, because the, the coal south bank is now, you know, from the Millennium Wheel, obviously, to the slidey children's play park in the Tate Modern, to, to the dome itself, this kind of circus tent, which is soon going to become roulette wheels. The whole thing aspires to the fairground to kind of Blackpool, or else it, it turns itself into an invasion of the past. Because the only thing left to invade by corporate finance is the past. So you, you, you kind of get this Xerox principle from whatever was originally a very strong and powerful idea. It's copied and copied and copied until it disappears. And the, the, the gothic horrors of the kind of moment of Jack the Ripper kind of filter down through all sorts of things till they become a very powerful... Uh, graphic novel by Alan Moore, but when that film is made into a film by Hollywood, they kind of reverse history. You actually invade the past, and, and the woman who is murdered and the most sort of atrocious of all these murders isn't murdered. It was all a mistake. Somebody else had borrowed her bed for the night, and she's let go into a kind of John Ford version of Ireland, where she's standing in a cottage with all her kiddies, and everything is okay. And this kind of horrible process is what we've got to really kind of work at in this book. I don't think it is nostalgic. I think because so many tale-tellers of all ages from 90 to teenagers are, are giving kind of fragments and versions of the story. You avoid these kind of terrible moments. And the only thing that I know disturbs Will slightly is that um, Michael Moorcock has, has done these gazetteer entries which are of, a, of an alternative London, a kind of parallel London, which everything is as he would like it to be, as his childhood and highwaymen and all sorts of things. 
And I, I was trying to kind sort of explain that I think these were written in, in a terrible exile in Bastrop, Texas, where you hang on to London or this alternate London desperately, and it plays against the, the, the tremendous work that Sarah Wise has done in, in documenting real disappearances from the city. But that is nostalgia. I mean, that, that, no, I mean there's, no, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's longing for a lost home, yeah. literally. And, that is, so, yeah. and so there's not, not, it's the nostalgia industry of creating a false past, which is... Well, I think he's nostalgic for nostalgia. It's gone, you know, as a, as a reality. He, he's too um, sophisticated and ironic to actually do the real thing, but he is nostalgic for the moment when he... F- wanted nostalgia when he thought it was something valuable and, and real. That stopped you. <laughs> Hello. Going back to disappearances, the um, disappearances of pubs, both as pubs as they're turned into housing, and um, their names disappearing for branding. I was reading at the weekend in The Guardian that there used to be a a pub in Camden called Mother Redcap, yeah. now called... There's one in Camberwell, still called... Is there? Yeah, and, so. But the name's gone, a pub chain's yeah, that, taken over a, and... A piece in, in this book by yeah, Marina Warner, yes, who was, was not only Redcap. kind of talked about the pubs disappearing and the names disappearing, yeah, no, but the kind of myths and legends of the people that created oh, those names in the first place. Oh, right, no, oh. I've just passed where the bull and mud used to be, at the bottom of Berry uh, Street. Last time I came here, it was still a pub. Mm. You know, it's not like you can't get a drink in this pub <laughs> town. I mean, let's not get carried away. <laughs> There's a gentleman at the back over there. I'm just going back to the idea of nostalgia and the city. And I don't really think it's sort of about nostalgia, but more about storytelling and the, the city, because it's about experiences that are fleeting and always disappearing. It, it's sort of something that encourages storytelling, and you need to do it because everything disappears. Whereas in the countryside, things are perhaps more stable. Just and uh, I just wonder what you think about that. Well, I, I don't think the book is about nostalgia at all. I think it's about a, a endlessly protean narrative string that's ever-evolving and, and is extremely vivid and accessible. And I think what's great about the work that Ian has done is that he, he's throwing the ball up for everybody to play with it, I mean, and all the contributors. It's not, there's nothing enclosed or cut and definitive or cyclopedic about this exercise. It's it, just, it opens it out. I'm not sure you're right about the countryside. I mean, it seems to me that the countryside, the narratives really are ploughed under and have pesticides sprayed on them. I mean, the great advantage of having this kind of density of people per square mile is that there is an endless and seamless oral transition. I mean, you look at, you know, the most significant change. I mean, nobody's going to, in central London in my lifetime, is that when I was a child, the ethnic minority population of central London was around 5%, and now it's nearly 40%. So that's the the biggest change, really, that I've witnessed. If you want to be really, really hard line about it, you could say that what's disappeared is a virtually white central London in that way. And, And, you know, 
frankly, good riddance as far as I'm concerned, because the city's all the more interesting for, for it having changed in that respect. In the, in the, the way in which depopulation has occurred in the countryside, that people have been kind of grubbed up, is a very different phenomenon. It's great, isn't it? I mean, this sort of tectonic plate theory that no, nothing actually disappears, it just gets mm. shunted into Dagenham. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it, that anything, you know, I mean, coming back to the heritage industry, I mean, one of the things that disappeared that was very striking was that they were redoing Constitution Arch for a while, and there was an enormous English heritage banner dangling off it that said, English heritage nobody does English heritage better. <laughs> now, only, only in Britain would a tautology be an ideology. You see, it's not, it's not like the continent where they throw out liberty or equality. Here they throw out a tautology as if it... So this endless recycling and kind of packaging of the past, I would argue, has been going on since the beginning in London. It is a city, because it was a city that, got, as it were, resurrected in the 17th, 7th century and was rebuilt on another city after a hiatus. You know, they were probably putting up banners in Saxon London saying English heritage. N you know, nobody does it better than English heritage. You know, I think it's a perennial feature there. And again, not to be too worried about. It. But the book itself actually looks like uh, it belongs in a National Trust um, shortbread can. It's, it's, it has this kind of... I, we had a slight sort of disagreement about that. But the packaging is such... I mean, I know it's ironic there are funny things going on, that it does, it does actually have that. This is what the uh, publishers thought would kind of uh, con... The, the, the public into thinking that the book's really all right. It's not going to be full of these seething, wormy pieces that we all like so much. It's just a tea towel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a cycle track in Hackney called Eastway, which has just closed down, and um, it was a rather desolate but wonderful place. And um, the last time I was on it, I had to cycle over a rat. And... Um, they're removing it, but um, the, the earth is so toxic that they have to, they're going to have to bury it in some kind of lead encasement somewhere. And then they're removing the track to Hainault, I believe, uh, where that's being delayed because um, there's some kind of newts who need to be able to cross the track. And they have to build some kind of bridge formation. Yeah, but the thing, all of these things, that, that's a you know, fantastic image and story which could clip straight into to a uh, second volume of this. Uh, and every time I go to listen to people who are talking powerfully and emotionally about what they're losing, like the, the Manor Garden allotments, I went there, and there was an old guy who'd uh, been a submariner, had been there working this horribly toxic bit of ground since the Second War, and, he, and, he, and someone had spread out this virtual map of what was coming, and he looks at it and he says, oh, my God, where the Olympic Stadium was, at, was actually going to be set. He said, oh, you know, I used to, this amazing image from my childhood, I used to go there. And it was just a mountain of bones. It was a huge mountain of bones because it was a glue factory. And as we approached it, we saw that the bones were, were moving and shimmering because they were alive with maggots. And he gave me that image, which I couldn't shake off. And, and said alongside it, uh, moored up on the, on the lee, were these um, barges that came up the river. 
full of shrimp carcasses, which were themselves invaded by further kind of maggoty life forms. And the whole landscape was, a, was alive and organic in the most horrific way. <laughs> and so the Im imposition of this sort of clean up, dead, new landscape that's going to uh, cover and amass all of this history doesn't mean that the, the fragments of stories and images and pictures are going to be eradicated because they're not because the whole thing is full of the most extraordinary stories and images. I, I bumped into a, a photographer who was Sicilian and who said to me, uh, or showed me these photographs which he'd taken on the Lee, where there was, seems to be a whole colony, which I didn't know about, of Sicilians. It kind of looks like the Sopranos. They all live there. They, they, they cornered the market in cucumbers. And uh, the kind of godfathery figures in braces and cigars, and they, they have uh, big dances every Wednesday, and they carry religious, you know, st and this is all going on somewhere up the Lee Valley. And, and these things kind of have a secrecy and a curiosity that we, we, we should sort of really honor and respect and not sweep away and, and tidy up the narrative. Let's keep the narrative loose ends rough. Let's keep the gaps between the stories, and, and that's all we can do, I think. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.